This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The Civil War was an era of separation between the North and the South, but it was also an era of separate spheres for men and women in American society. The vast majority of the writing on the war era has focused on the men's experience. Today, we'll look at this period through the eyes of three women, Angelina Grimke-Weld, Verena Howell-Davis, and Julia Dent Grant. The book is Civil War Wives. The author, our guest today, is Carol Birkin, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful spring afternoon, the first weekend, the first Friday of March 2010, from the campus of East Carolina University in the Brewster Building with its freshly repainted lobby, failing to disguise its decrepit age. Uh, but though speaking from East Carolina and using its audiovisual equipment, not representing the university or speaking for it, and of course our guest today will speak only for herself as well. Thanks, uh, as always, to everyone who has uh, sent uh, uh, emails over the past week with suggestions for future guests for the show or with contributions for the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, which you can send through PayPal at CW, uh, no, try again, CivilWarTR at AOL.com. Those are always welcome. And the suggestions also always welcome. I'm following up some of them. There are some emails I've received I have not acknowledged, and I apologize for that. Uh, often the ones with the best suggestions are the ones that I go to work on, and, and then I forget to write back and thank the people who sent them in until after I've got it set up. So hopefully I'll be getting back to everyone on that score. Um, received a report of some technical trouble getting into the website this week, but it seems to be okay, and uh, certainly we're here uh, doing our show today, so hopefully all is well on that front as well. And unlike the past two weeks, there's nothing to report uh, in terms of the state of North Carolina restricting the uh, historical education of its students. In the last month or so, we've seen an ill-conceived effort to eliminate U.S. history before 1877 from the high school curriculum, uh, but that seems to have been shot down and other, uh, other initiatives have taken place, um, but nothing this past week, so we'll take our, our small victories one at a time 
and uh, hopefully continue to uh, educate the youth of North Carolina uh, in American history and other subjects uh, as best we can. Today's uh, show, as said in the introduction, focuses on uh, a topic we don't address often enough on this show, and I would suggest not often enough in American uh, historiography generally. Uh, the, uh, the book we'll be talking about is called Civil War Wives, The Lives and Times of Angelina Grimke Weld, Verena Howell Davis, and Julia Dent Grant. And its author is uh, Professor Carol Birkin. Uh, Dr. Birkin, are you there? I'm here, yes. Right, well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, I, I, we've we've not met uh, anywhere at, at any conferences that I can recall. I, I hope you don't mind if, if we go on a first name basis. Just oh no, that's fine with convenient. me. Uh, then uh, please call me Jerry if, if you okay. would. And um, this uh, this book is named Civil War Wives, and I wanted to start with uh, asking you a little bit about your own interest in the topic. Um, what brought you to this? Uh, to this particular angle, or more generally, what brought you to uh, Civil War in 19th century American history? Right. I, I've spent most of my academic life uh, creeping up to the Civil War, that is, in colonial American history and then revolutionary and early republic. But throughout, with some forays, uh, I wrote about Charlotte Perkins Gilman at one point, 19th century feminist. But Throughout my writing, one of the things I've been most interested in is how, when we use a gender prism, things that we think are very familiar, things that we think we know well, suddenly appear differently. And I thought that what I wanted to do is look at an event as large and as momentous as the Civil War and all the changes that it brought. and think, how would it look to women who were very close to the seats of power, who knew the men who shaped events, generals, presidents, political leaders, how, how would those things look if we looked at it through their eyes? And this question has come up for me about the American Revolution. It's come up about things in early American history, and so I thought I would follow through with it uh, taking the second great event in American history after the American Revolution and take a look at the Civil War. And so that's how I came to this. Uh, biography in particular is something that that I like to write and that I think is one way to engage people's interests in large, large events that sometimes seem too big to absorb and manage. And so that's how I got to uh, these three women and how I got to this subject. Well, the, the book takes the form, as you suggest, of a sort of three-part biography. You, you look at each of these three women in, in some detail. Mm -hmm. And that I was struck when I first saw the title of the book, I had in mind that it might be more like uh, a female equivalent of uh, The Life of Johnny Reb by Bell Wiley or right, right. Soldiers Blue and Gray by Robertson. Mm -hmm. It would be a, a, looking at the wives of Civil War soldiers or officers. And in a sense, uh, whereas that would be looking at, at, at 
women's view is something that hasn't been done often enough. Uh, looking at these elite women is, is, in a sense, almost an old-fashioned way of doing it, uh, is it not? Well, in a sense, certainly people like Drew Faust have taken a look at how women mobilized for, mobilized for the war. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, having written Revolutionary Mothers, the truth is that women mobilized the same for virtually <laughs> until <laughs> the most recent war when women have been combatants or women have been officers in the military or have been in the government. Women have been mobilized and have mobilized almost exactly the same. The men go off to war. Women take over the businesses, the farms, the homes. They raise the children while the husbands are away. The husbands come back, and women are asked to go back into the home. This goes on straight up through World War II. Uh, they suffer deprivations. They lose their husbands or lovers. I, I, I'm not making light of this at all, but I think that that story we could fill in the blanks rather easily. But I was fascinated by the kinds of insights that we get from people like Verena Howell-Davis, who is one of my favorite, I think, favorite women I've ever tried to write about, in which she says uh, about Stephen A. Douglas, who every textbook includes because of popular sovereignty. But she writes, uh, he would be more charming if he bathed more often. And I thought, you know, what... What an insight that no, I shouldn't say no, but that I imagine no biographer of Stephen A. Douglas is going to include in the kind of grand man of the pre-Civil War era biographies that get written. So I thought here was a chance to see not just these women's lives, which I, I think are in many ways emblematic, but also to see how things that, that we say, oh, yeah, I know about that. I know about Ulysses S. Grant. I know. To see him as a human being from the perspective of someone who knew him intimately. And so this is why I turn to these uh, relatively elite women, in part because they leave documents. What was telling to me and and says something about the way in which we value men's writings over women's writings, is I began with a long, long list of women that I wanted to include in this and discovered rather quickly that there were very few of them who left enough records or whose records were preserved by families' archives to be able to tell this story from their point of view. Uh, I was really eager to write about Frederick Douglass's second wife, Helen Pitts Douglass, but there's almost no material. So I would really be writing about Frederick Douglass's view of his wife. And when I eliminated all of the women who I couldn't find enough about in their own words, I, I thought that in itself told me something. There was certainly Mary Todd Lincoln, but Catherine Clinton had just done a wonderful biography of her. There was Jessie Benton Fremont, but several people have written books about her and her husband, uh, to, that is, their relationship. And so I, I really came down to these three, I think if you'd agree, very, very different women with very, very different marriages. 
and one of the advantages that came out of this is I think they represent the three possible variations on 19th century bourgeois marriage. And so for me, that was also critically important as a women's historian to say, what are the range of possibilities for marriage among 19th century bourgeois, in 19th century bourgeois families? Well, this is, uh, that makes sense, certainly, and I think it, it works well as a, a literary strategy because the book is very interesting, and, and the three women, as you say, are uh, you know, each tell interesting stories. In terms of representing three strategies for, for, for bourgeois marriage in 19th century America, uh, how, how set the stage there? What, what, what was the expected role of uh, the wife and mother in well, this era? It, it was an r- interesting experience for me because, of course, Julia Dent Grant, who is the most um, conservative of these three women, she and her husband never challenge gender expectations. They're perfectly content to follow the norms of their society. And what amused me is, of course, she's the only truly happy one. And I thought, you know, I really didn't want to write a book in which I said ignorance is bliss or conservative approaches to gender is bliss. But she and and Ulysses, or Ulysses as she called her husband, both accepted without question ever the idea that men and women had separate spheres that men were responsible for protecting and caring for economically, uh, that is financially for their wives, that women were responsible for the family, for domestic life, for soothing the brow of their husband. You know, uh, Christopher Lash's wonderful phrase, the home was a haven from a heartless world. And the two of them, no matter what came their way, accepted that this was natural uh, when when Yulis dies, the eulogy for him refers to him like a mighty oak and she like a vine that wound lovingly around him. And this language, uh, it, I think, epitomizes the ideal. Now, this is not to say that every single family who were middle class or upper middle class families lived up to this ideal, but they are in many ways the model of what the 19th century bourgeois family aspired to. Uh, On the other hand, Jefferson Davis, not my favorite person after reading about uh, his life with Verena, Jefferson Davis claimed when he courted his second wife, Verena Howell, uh, that he loved her for her spirit, her independence, and her intelligence, and she was an extraordinarily bright woman. But when he married her, he literally, uh, I won't say abused her, but he hounded her to behave as a traditional, reticent, obedient, retiring wife. And there was uh, uh, there were several years in which he punished her for not behaving as he expected her to behave. And she led a I think really, in many ways, a very tragic life. She spent much of her time trying to please him uh, and trying to conform to something that simply was not in her character. 
Uh, On the other hand, Angela, and and I think that marriage reflects the power that husbands had Mm -hmm. over their wives. Angelina Grimke and, and, you know, well, excuse me? I want to get back to Grant, if we we could, Mm -hmm. because we we have an ample amount of time, and and I want to just... Uh, explore a little more deeply, if we sure. could. Um, uh, you, you said the Grants were were happy, and uh, compared to the other two families, and didn't uh, um, uh, did not challenge the the uh, the mores that mm-hmm. they were born into. You use the phrase in your book that I thought was very uh, interesting. The uh, Julia Grant represents the rewards of the unexamined life. Yes. Uh, uh, that was very striking. That, But do you think it's fair to say that her life was, was strictly unexamined or that she, uh, to what extent did she examine or, or recognize alternatives to the role and simply choose? No, I think not at all. I, okay. I, I mean, if you read Julia's memoirs, she's referred to in by my children who, of course, have have no generosity as Julia the Ditz. That is, if you read her memoir, it's extraordinary. She ref- she understands the world entirely in a personal way in terms of how it has an impact on her, on the people she loves, on her family, and that's it. She has this wonderful moment where people are talking to her in 1863 about the constitutionality of slavery and the constitutionality of secession, and she owns up without uh, apparently any embarrassment that she has no idea what the Constitution is they're talking about and wouldn't know where to find it if she wanted to and wasn't really interested in doing so. So this is a person who, uh, and and I... uh, I'd like to point out, really, that she turns out, I think, to be the most important person in the book, because, in fact, I think Julia is very much like most people. When events that are so large and so cataclysmic and so chaotic happen around you that you can't fully understand and that you cannot control, one of the ways people cope with things like that or to personalize them. I I call it in the book, I think, domesticating them. And that's what Julia does. She understands the world around her, which is changing dramatically in every regard, by taming it and by making it about, is it good for my husband? Is it good for me? Is it good for my father? Is it good for my children? And I don't think historians ever really bother to write about these kinds of people. That is... there's a shocking lack of interest in people who deal with the world in a way that actually rings a chord for all of us, I think. And so she believed the Civil War was a wonderful event because it gave her husband a chance to shine. And she believed that the end of slavery was an inconvenience because she had to now pay people instead of own people. It never, there's never a moment when she contemplates the large meaning of the end of slavery. And I think that if we look at modern society this very moment, that a lot of people react to economic recession and health care reform and name an issue by saying, well, will it be good for my son? 
if my son has asthma, will will a clause that says pre-existing conditions won't matter? Is that good for my family? Yeah. And so, in many ways, I think Julia is every woman, uh, and, and I found importance in her that I did not expect to find. Well, I think she, she does re- reflect very much a human trait. Certainly, if, if global warming reaches Greenville, North Carolina, I'll have beachfront property, and what's wrong with that? <laughs> we're going to take a short break right <laughs> well, now. I mean, we'll, think about it. Global we'll warming, back. who can imagine it? But you can really imagine it if you think, oh, gee, I yeah, will okay. never be able to wear my fur coat again. <laughs> not that I have one, but... Yeah. but uh, yes, we're going to take a short break right now, sure. and we'll be right back. This is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Nineteenth-century women were to be seen and not heard. Angelina Grim K. Weld didn't fit the mold. We'll talk about her when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Carol Birkin, author of Civil War Wives, The Lives and Times of Angelina Grim K. Weld, Verena Howell Davis, and Julia Dent Grant. In our first segment, we talked uh, about Mrs. Grant in particular uh, and the rewards of the unexamined life, the happiness of a woman who did not challenge 19th century gender roles, who was happy to be the uh, the the homemaker or at least the supervisor of the the servants, the person who managed the domestic front responsible for morals and her husband's happiness while the husband dealt with the metaphorical battlefield of uh, the business world or in Grant's case, the literal battlefield of the Civil War. Um, Carol, the... uh, Grant has become a, a relatively hot topic lately. Uh, uh, I wonder if you've read Joan Waugh's recent book about him. No, I'm sorry, I haven't. It's, uh, the, she, she argues that he is, in many ways, the, the hero of the late 19th century. And uh, uh, I, I, I'm hoping uh, perhaps your, your book will, will ride that wave. Uh, my colleague Charles Calhoun is working on a biography of Grant as well, and, and I'm hoping his, too, will catch the, the interest in the late 19th century that, that I know, think is growing. You know, he is a very likable... Per, I'm speaking from the perspective of a women's historian. Mm-hmm. He's an honorable man toward his wife. He fulfills, you know, uh, he fulfills his obligations to his wife lovingly. There, he is... Uh, when when Richmond is conquered and everyone rides in to look at the town, Grant says they've suffered enough. They don't need me. I'm paraphrasing, but in essence, he says they don't need the man who conquered them to ride in and rub it in their faces. And and you know, there's a kind of uh, um, dignity to to him. Uh, he, my my favorite story about him, which I will be interested to see if it appears in the biographies of of 
him rather than her, she has a she suffers from a wandering eye, strabismus it's called, and it distorts her appearance. She's a homely woman actually, uh, short and round and really not very pretty. But she goes to him after he emerges as the the hero of the Civil War. And she says, I hear there's an operation to have my eye fixed. Maybe maybe I should do that because we're in, in public so much. And he says to her, after many years of marriage, he says, I fell in love with you with that eye, and I love you with it still, and I don't want you to change a thing about yourself. I, I can't imagine there's any woman in the world, or for that matter, any man in the world, who would not like to hear that from the person they love. So I, I, I think he is, in many ways, uh, a true 19th century gentleman. Uh, and and his, his memoirs uh, are possibly the best piece of writing to emerge from the war. So yes, and you know he writes them in enormous pain at the end, and he, he says, I need to be able to leave my wife money to live on. I mean, this is a devoted, devoted husband. Uh, a, a partner, I should say. You know, this is a devoted man, and there is. I, I will leave it to others to discuss his generalship or his presidency, which certainly left a lot to be desired. But as a, in personal relationships, unlike many famous men, you know, Benjamin Franklin, horrible to his own family, wonderful to dinner guests. I think that that he emerges really. Uh, really well in at least in from the perspective of this book well that that is he is certainly an appealing figure and the contrast is interesting with the the other two uh, women you describe and I thought we might talk about the first one of them because uh, she would be the least familiar to uh, Civil War uh, students, uh, her yes. career being mostly before the war. Right. Uh, right. But tell, tell us a little bit about the background of, of Angelina Grimke. If there is a heroic figure in the book, it is certainly is Angelina Grimke Wells. She grows up the daughter of one of the wealthiest South Carolina planters uh, of the 1830s and, and uh, 20s. She's uh, attractive, and she should have led a life of ease and comfort as a Southern belle who would marry a wealthy man and have slaves continue to wait on her hand and foot. And she begins to have serious doubts about her family's life and what it's based on. And in fact, as a teenager, I began to read her diary when my daughter was a teenager. And as I often say, Angelina is a classic teenager. When she discovers that her mother is wrong... She berates her morning, noon, and night. She she leaves behind a diary that uh, 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 of these last few years when she's in South Carolina that would just make any parent laugh because she attacks her mother for virtually everything short of not breathing correctly. She attacks her brothers, and the attacks are on idleness, uh, luxury, and slavery. But she is not yet really concerned about the slaves so much as she is concerned about condemning uh, uh, her family. She leaves. She goes to join her older sister in Philadelphia. 
And here she writes, uh, she becomes involved in abolition. That is, she begins to read about the abolitionist movement. And what's so admirable about Angelina is she truly grows. That is, she goes from being someone who is simply critical of Southern slave owners to someone who has a genuine empathy and respect for African Americans. Uh, and I, she writes a letter to uh, William Lloyd Garrison, editor of The Liberator, that she thinks is just a private letter saying, don't give up the fight. And he knows a good thing when he sees one. He publishes this letter because of all the abolitionists. She's the only one who ever really lived in the system of slavery. And she is catapulted to fame or notoriety, and it turns out that she is a brilliant public speaker. And she is finally silenced by the movement itself, not just because she begins to speak about women's right to speak and duty to speak publicly about moral issues. That disturbs them enough because the men in the abolitionist movement are quite conservative on gender issues. But she disturbs them dramatically because she says ending slavery is only the first step. Racial equality must be our goal. And I think her life tells us about the limitations, even of the abolitionists, because they do not want that issue raised. And I, and I never realized that really fully until I read the letters that they wrote to her, saying, first of all, be quiet about women's issues. They're unimportant. But secondly, stop talking about racial equality. And she lives her entire life trying to honor the values that she has. Uh, they, she marries Theodore Weld, a very famous abolitionist, and she is set into the household. Now you're going to go be a wife and a mother. He's actually warned by abolitionist friends not to marry her because she's ruined for marriage, having been a public figure. And she, she is miserable and unhappy as a domestic figure. She, she, she watches, as I think I say in the book, she watches history pass her by. But in her old age, she discovers that her brother, one of her, her brothers has three mulatto sons with a slave woman, and two of them have come north. She acknowledges them publicly. She sends two of them to Harvard Law School and to Divinity School, and she honors her own values by, by recognizing these two young men. So I find her to be really one of the most admirable people that I've ever had the pleasure to write about. Well, she really does grow, certainly, in the course of your telling. Yeah. Uh, I thought from her the beginning of her teenage rebellion, as you described, the first line in her diary, uh, you say, was, today I have torn up my novels. Yeah. She's putting aside romantic novels, and she's going to... Uh, care about real issues. But, but the things she has to overcome, the, the, you mentioned she's a, a public speaker, but that was not something a woman could ordinarily do. Right. She's allowed to speak. Women are allowed to speak to other women in private, in parlors. And she begins her 
speaking on abolition to she has a wonderful line she says i have seen it i have seen it and really there's almost no one else who can say that but the crowds the the number of women who come to see her grow so she's speaking in churches and finally of course men begin to sneak into the assemblies where she speaks and she says in essence anybody who wants to come and hear me though she often is bitter about the fact that she thinks many men come to view her as a kind of freak that is she wonders if they're there just to see a woman who can speak for two hours on abolition or if they really care but it's when white men come to hear her speak that the ministers of new england ban her from their churches and that the abolitionists try to silence her uh, interestingly, when black men come to hear her speak, there's a meeting in Poughkeepsie where there are, they call them promiscuous audiences when it's a mixed audience of men and women. No one says a word when it's black men and black women, but when it's white men and white women, uh, this is too shocking. And she's referred to in Massachusetts newspapers as Devilina, not Angelina. Uh. I thought it's interesting that uh, one of the people who condemns her for for speaking out on women's rights uh, is Catherine Beecher. Oh, absolutely. And Catherine Beecher, when 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 Angelina originally goes to Philadelphia, she travels to uh, Connecticut to uh, um, to New England, and she meets Catherine Beecher, and she thinks her schools are wonderful, and she wants to enroll and become a teacher. For which the Quakers in Philadelphia. Uh, are horrified that she's associated with a non-Quaker and quickly squash this. Angelina has a whole history, I think, of people who appear to be tolerant and liberal putting the screws on her when she tries to live up to the values that they seem to espouse. I mean, she, she really is like a lightning rod to discover the limits of people's liberality. Uh, and and she admires Catherine Beecher, and then when Catherine Beecher writes these essays saying that what Angelina is doing is horrible and unfeminine and inappropriate, Angelina fires back a series of essays, letters to Catherine Beecher, and challenges her. She's a very uh, she's a very hard-headed defender of her own of her own moral values and is not shy about about stepping further into the fray uh, I, I'm tempted to say though I don't like words like you would describe her as a feisty woman but I think she really is one one of these people who who defends her ideas rather than herself and and she's a fascinating person and she marries a truly bizarre man. I mean, he's, he's a character. And he tries. He tries to have an egalitarian marriage. He swears he's going to have an egalitarian marriage. He's like men in the 60s who said, oh, I'm, you know, we're going to have an egalitarian marriage. I'll cook, but I don't know anything about shopping or making up beds. And, and Theodore Will 
tries, but in the end, he's in charge of the family, and he decides where they live, and he decides what they eat, and he decides what furniture they're going to have, and he decides that Angelina will stay home. And, and it's, he's not a cruel man, but he simply falls into the pattern that, that is acceptable in his society. And now he's the author of Slavery as It Is, one of the yeah. great uh, anti-slavery books and a great orator himself. So he's, as you say, he's politically aligned with her 100%. 100%. But, you know, Slavery as It Is, all the research on that book, or most of it, was done by Angelina and her sister Sarah. But it's his name that goes on the book. This is not an uncommon practice right, into, right up until today. Uh, they they go through thousands of newspaper clippings, and Angelina records, you know, the work that she did. Uh, at, but it's his name that goes on this book, and certainly his political values, his on the whole, his social values are excellent. But there's a horrible moment when she's terribly depressed about being in the domestic sphere, and he writes to her in classic. 19th century gender language, it's because you have a nervous temperament. You know, women have nervous temperaments, and that's what's making you uh, like, like you are. Uh, uh, Jefferson Davis said this to, to Verena all the time. You're, he would write to Verena's mother, her nervousness is, is a little better this, this month. She's calmer this month. And so uh, it was really, for me, the low point of writing about Angelina when he sends her this letter as he's actively involved in politics in Washington and she's sitting home on the farm, and he says, you just have a nervous temperament. Well, it is, uh, in many ways, a model, as you say, of 19th century uh, relationships, uh, and we see echoes of that uh, in uh, today too. We're going to take another short break now and we'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. As Jefferson Davis struggled for independence from the Union, Verena Davis struggled for independence from her husband. We'll find out who won when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Carol Birkin, author of Civil War Wives. It's a three-part biography of Angelina Grimke-Weld, Verena Davis, and Julia Grant. Uh, and in our first two segments, we talked about the domestic, the uh, happy, if unexamined life of Julia Grant, uh, supporting her husband 
the much more tortured life of Angelina Grimke, the abolitionist uh, from South Carolina who married another abolitionist, Theodore Weld, and then uh, found that they find themselves trapped in the model of domesticity of 19th century America that prevents her from carrying out her career as a, an anti-slavery speaker. Uh, and in our third segment, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Verena Davis, the uh, wife of Jefferson Davis, uh, of whom many listeners will be familiar with the story of her life, starting with the, uh, the fact that she was the second husband of Jefferson Davis. Uh, some people think that uh, was it colored or shaped the entire marriage. Uh, let's start with that, uh, Carol, if, if we could. Uh, what about uh, Jefferson Davis's first wife? Did her shadow loom over the Davis marriage? You know, I have never been able to... Dis- First of all, what fascinates me is for many people, this is the key question to raise about Verena. Did Jefferson Davis really love her? Uh, which sort of reduces her her entire life to, to this one question, but I, I've never been able to resolve myself whether this was part of his um, uh, unspoken or implicit threat to her, you're not living up to the image of my first wife, you're not behaving the way she would have behaved, and I really wouldn't put that past Jefferson Davis. But it is true that he had this, uh, you couldn't make up a more romantic story. He courts Zachary Taylor's daughter, Knox Taylor. Uh, They fall madly in love when he's a a young uh, officer under Taylor. And Taylor says, no, I won't let my daughter marry a military man because I know how hard it's been on my wife. And he forbids them to see each other, but they meet secretly, and they have friends that arrange these meetings, and finally, uh, after, you know, it's a sort of Romeo and Juliet story, finally they marry despite her parents, and they go on their honeymoon trip, and she dies. She dies. They come down with malaria or some, some fever on the, uh, on the honeymoon trip, and she dies. Well, you know, it, it's, you couldn't get a more romantic story than that, and certainly uh, Verena's own mother, who is the same age as Jefferson Davis, he's some 17 years older than than Verena, is worried about whether she can uh, ever live up to, I, I guess it's Daphne du Maurier who has that wonderful book, Rebecca, where you can't live up to the image of the first wife. But... My own sense about Jefferson Davis, and I did grow up in Alabama, so I'm not trying to insult the leader of the South uh, just because I think Grant was an admirable husband. But I I think that Jefferson Davis was incapable, really, of loving anyone. He viewed his wife as... uh, He writes letters to Verena when he's in prison that some historians have called beautiful love letters, but if you read them from a woman's point of view, there's not a single word in those letters that say, I love you because of some characteristic of yours. All of the reasons he loves her is for the things she has done for him. And I think that that is 
pretty much the limits of Jefferson Davis's capacity for love for a woman is I love you because you did this for me and you did that for me and you stood by me and you nursed me and you did it. But I don't think he really sees her as a person in her own in her own right. Uh, and so um, I couldn't tell you if Knox had lived, if Knox Taylor had lived, if Jefferson Davis would have been any more loving to her than he was to Verena. This is one of those we'll never know uh, questions. He, he he under he utilizes all of Verena's talents privately. He asks her advice. She's very astute politically, much more so than he is, I think. Uh, he gets her advice. She writes letters to his constituency. And when he is imprisoned after the war, ironically, he encourages Verena to behave in the most extraordinarily unfeminine fashion from his point of view. She talks to the lawyer. She demands an interview with Grant and with Andrew Johnson. Grant, of course, is very kind to her. Andrew Johnson is not. She writes letters to former abolitionists asking and successfully getting from them money to put forward to his bail. I mean, she's, she's, you're not even supposed to write a letter to a man you don't know if you're a proper matron. And she's out there really doing everything she can, and he's encouraging this all the behavior that when he was married to her, he abhorred. Uh, and, and so I, I think that he has a kind of utilitarian view <laughs> of, of his wife. You know, I'll use her resources when I need them, and I won't use them when I don't need them. So his, his deep affection for her seems to me to be really uh, uh, an egotistical one. And I was thinking, if there's anything to the idea that, that uh, of the paradigm of the first wife model, um, and I want to tie in some of the question about Mary Lincoln, uh, uh, who is not a character in, in, that you write about here, but uh, the same story of, of the the young first love who died tragically, mm-hmm. attached to Lincoln after his death in the form of Anne Rutledge. Right. Uh, but that story didn't come up again until Lincoln had died, and, and William Herndon wrote about it. And, of course, Mary Lincoln resented it very deeply. And she resented uh, virtually everything. Yes. And she resented many things, that's true. But the, uh, but the public was certainly ready for it. They were able to absorb that story, the idea that uh, the first wife is the, the lasting love may have fit a, a, a model, a, a narrative that, that people were, were happy to accept. Um, but, yes, but I, and I think also it fits the sort of romantic mood of the of the era. Your first love is your true love. But as I said, my first of all, my sense is that when telling the story of Verena's life, there is a great deal that is that is more interesting and more important than than whether he loved her more or less than his first wife. But uh, as I said, secondly, I, I think he had a very limited capacity to love anyone. And, and you know, with friends like him, you didn't need enemies if you were a woman. Uh, there's a, he, he also betrays her. He's the kind of man who really needs 
a doting woman around him at all times. And so when Verena is in England, he takes up, if not physically, at least emotionally, with Clement Clay, his friend's wife. He certainly takes up, when he goes down to Beauvoir, down to, to Biloxi, he has no trouble allowing uh, this woman who adores him uh, to fuss and bother over him. Verena is, is heartbroken by that. Uh, she, she gets word that this stranger who she's never met is sitting with her husband after all Verena went through with him, everything she did for him, sitting and helping him write his memoirs. And Verena says to him rightly, she says, how could you do this to me? This is not just your story. This is my story. And you get the very clear sense that Jefferson Davis doesn't understand what the issue is for her because clearly he needs someone, to a, a soft, gentle figure to be around him. And uh, there's a uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song, if you're not near the one you love, love the one you're near. Well, that seems to be, uh, that seems, I'm revealing my pop culture interests here. That seems to be seriously Jefferson Davis's attitude. Uh, it, it, and, it does. That happens yeah. when they're separated after the war, after yes. she's gotten him out of Fort Monroe. Yes. Uh, and, and then they, they lead separate lives where, where her desire for independence is such that she doesn't come at his beck and call every time he wants to move somewhere. Yes, and so he makes up for that by finding other women. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not simply that she doesn't, it's not even her wish for independence. She's also quite ill. You know, she's taking care of this family. She's been a prisoner uh, under house arrest of, of the Union government. She has worried about the condition of her husband, who she is not allowed to communicate with for a year. She has three children died during the war. She, I mean, this woman has been through the most difficult existence for, for 10 years, and she really fundamentally has a breakdown when they're, and, and then he can't earn a living after the war, and they traipse to England, and they traipse to Canada, and they, uh, he loses his, uh, like Grant, he was not very good at anything in the business world. And, and she finally, when they're in England and he decides to go home, she says, I, I'm sick, I can't walk, I can't, I, I, my heart is troubling me. And, and he goes home and he, takes up with, with someone else. So that I, I, think, I, I think that the callousness uh, of his treatment of his wife shows itself over and over and over again. And, and, and I want to add that at the very end of her life, after he dies, she finally enjoys a few years of happiness, in a sense. She moves to New York City. She writes for the uh, newspaper, and she runs, in essence, a salon where all the people that Jefferson Davis didn't like, artists, playwrights, actors, writers, uh, gather and find her charming and interesting and love her wit and love her intelligence and yet when she dies, the last thing she says 
to her only surviving child, a married daughter. She says, don't wear black in mourning for me. It will disturb your husband. And so you see how deeply rooted the socialized gender expectations and roles are, that, that no matter how far Verena came, no matter how independent the end of her life was, she tells her daughter, don't do anything that will disturb your husband. And I, I found that touching and, and sad, and I think it reflects the power of the norms of the society you grow up in. Now, there's another, I would say, also very touching moment uh, you relate uh, at the same time or near the same time in, in Mrs. Davis's life uh, when she, by chance, runs into Mrs. Grant at West Point. Yes, yes it's an amazing. You know, I, I, I'd like to see a masterpiece theater version of this. And it's so typical of Julia Grant. Julia Grant has a good heart. She's a nice person. And they're both in West Point for quite different reasons, and they're staying at the same hotel. And Julia hears that Mrs. Jefferson Davis is there, and she knocks on her door and introduces herself. And the two women sit down and have tea. They're both widows. They're, they both have had husbands who've been slandered, you know, and attacked in the press. And Verena writes Julia this wonderful letter, and she says, don't, don't let them uh, uh, get you down. History will will vindicate you and your husband. Don't let the the gossip mongers uh, 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 depress you. And they become friends. And when Grant's tomb is dedicated, it's Verena Hal Davis that Julia Dent Grant invites to go with her to the ceremony. And one of the New York newspapers hearing about them sitting down together at West Point has a headline that says, The Civil War is Finally Over. Mrs. Grant and Mrs. Davis sit down to tea. And I, I mean, there's this wonderful sense about these two elderly women who, who realize that the war doesn't matter anymore, that they have more in common uh, in many ways than they have that separates them. So I do think that that's a, a, a marvelous moment in both of their lives. You can hardly imagine any person in America, either one of them, could talk to who would understand it, uh, right. what each had been through. That, that's exactly the sense that you get from their little exchange of letters, that they understand one another, that reaching across all the barriers that that politicians or military men might have that they have something they have something in common and so i thought that that was a, a really a a wonderful exchange of a feeling and of sentiment between the two women there's a, and you know there's a current uh, the, the argument that david blight and others make about the reconciliation of north and south uh, at the end of the 19th century being forged in a mutual forgetfulness of the the political and especially racial elements of the war. Uh, but but this incident points out there's also a, a human aspect to it. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Th th and that, not... I mean, that carries us back to, you asked me in the beginning why, you know, why I 
picked these women why I wrote this book. That was really what I was looking for. I was looking for how to take this event that's often written about in epic form, uh, you know, as it should be, that that is written about as a sort of Cecil B. DeMille event uh, and in, in heroic terms. I wanted to really see see it on a human level, see it on a personal level, see the 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 ways in which what happened to these women uh what happened in their lives how they picked their lives up after the war how it tells us a lot about i don't know human society and how people how how people endure because really the story of of Verena and the story of Angelina are about people who have endured, who survive, who get through terrible things. And uh, and so that was really what I was looking for and that I hope I conveyed in their stories. Well, I, I would say you certainly did. I found it very uh, uh, interesting. Uh, that's not, not the, uh, nearly as strong enough word, engaging uh, uh, a, a look at three women that, which and I'll admit, when I first saw there was these three particular women, I, I had a thought that well, you know, it's sort of the low-hanging fruit here. There's lots of sources. Uh, why these three women? But as I read it, uh, the, as you say, the three strategies of dealing with uh, separate spheres came out: the the privations, the endurance uh, they had to face, or in, in Mrs. Grant's case, the uh, almost cheerful obliviousness with which she went through life. Uh, uh, yet playing her role within her assigned sphere uh, uh, as well as she could. It was a fascinating I, story. I tried to use these women also. I mean, the death of children, which was very common. I tried to bring home the kind of heroic medicine that is that didn't work in the 19th century. I, I wanted. There were moments in their lives that I thought opened up a way to personalize uh, for the reader. Things that we all sort of sort of know, but know in an intellectual way rather than in a in a, a visceral way, and and so it didn't matter whether they were famous or not famous women, elite women or not. Or when your child dies of a fever, your child dies of a fever, and and so I think in that sense they represent a broader range of women than their social class. Or at least I hope that I made that clear clear in the book. Well, that, I think it does become very clear. They do appear as as human beings, not as you know, representatives of a class or or uh, uh, even of a time. But but their their human elements really come through. So it, it was uh, definitely a, a book I enjoyed and one I would recommend to our listeners uh, to get a copy of. The title of it is Civil War Wives. The Lives and Times of Angelina Grimke Weld, Verena Howell Davis, and Julia Dent Grant. And the author is Carol Birkin. Uh, definitely something uh, you'll want, uh, listeners, you'll want to get a copy of. Thank you very much. Thank you for talking with me. And Carol Birkin, thank you for being on Civil War Talk Radio. And listeners, thank you for listening this week to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.